All right, so let me set the scene. Last Thursday, I was invited to be on this panel graciously by our guest today, Aaron Haygood. And uh, it was at this uh, historic church in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, a neighborhood that is uh, largely Polish, but also a lot of Ukrainian people. And this church was just packed. All the pews were full. There were people hanging off the rafters. Yeah, fire department came and had to kick some people out, but we snuck them back in. They weren't going to let me into it, but, uh, you know, I I, I had to to yell at the organizers, I know him, I know one of the panelists, and finally I was able to push myself into the crowded room. Everybody was gathered to hear some of those the most important leaders of the communist movement today, one of the leaders of the Communist Party of Great Britain, uh, one of the leaders of the, the Bolshevik tendency, which is, I think we all agree, the rightful inheritors of Trotsky's Fourth International, and of course me, one of the most influential figures in the anti-authoritarian movement, they wanted to know our position on the war that's broken out in Europe and what they should tell their fellow workers and their cadres to prepare the next steps. If you refuse to support the capitalist war machine, they will follow your example. And if the workers of the world stand together, the war can be stopped. <laughs> We each spoke. One person believed that we should defend the invasion and the actions of Putin. Another um, was not in favor of the invasion, but had some strong positions about what an anti-war movement should look like. And then I kind of said my normal thing about like the George Floyd uprising and the Kazakhstan insurrection and all that stuff. Um, but I had uh, uh, Aaron put me on the spot with this question of what my definition of imperialism was. And I I said I didn't have one because I didn't think it was important to have a firm position on imperialism because it might lead you to take a kind of silly position like supporting Putin's invasion, for example, or believing it would be impossible for Putin to invade because that's what the imperialist press says or something. So I'm skeptical, but... Uh, uh, Aaron says that she's been doing some research on the subject, on Lenin and Marx's writings on it, and Sean's also done some research. So maybe we can, uh, you can school me today. Before we jump in, I would say I'm not really in a position to school anybody. <laughs> I have been reading a lot uh, in anticipation of this episode, and also the China episode, which I'm doing with Varn uh, this month or next month. But uh, I'm here to learn, too, and to listen and to discuss this out. So I think it's going to be a good, a good one. So thanks for being here, Aaron. You are uh, with Platypus NYC. Do you want to describe a little bit about yourself and uh, not correct me on my description of the panel? Oh, sure, sure. Thanks for having me, Andy, and thanks for being on the panel. Um, yeah, I'm Aaron Haygood. Um, I am a member of the Organizational Committee for the Platypus Affiliated Society, which is a fancy way of saying that I'm basically one of the elected representatives of Platypus internationally, and I also am one of the, I guess, kind of lead organizers in NYC, you could say. Um, I and others from our chapter in New York invited you along with Christoph Lichtenberg of the IBT and Daniel Lazare, who's not quite a member of the CPGB. He's more of a contributor to the Weekly Worker, but we invited the three of you to discuss Ukraine. Um, I do think, you know, one, one small, uh, yeah, one just quick uh, point of clarification, I suppose, on the panel is that I think something that was unique about the panel is we actually didn't ask the panelists to give kind of a position 
um, that somebody ought to take on the war in Ukraine. Of course, some of the panelists did. Um, and we were expecting that that would happen. Um, but we also wanted to provoke, I think, a more reflective discussion um, about the meaning of these different categories on the left, like imperialism or national self-determination um, that are being called upon now to describe the war in Ukraine, but which have kind of a deeper history um, and perhaps had different meanings um, to Marxists historically. Um, and that was something I actually really appreciated about your remarks, Andy, is that you started by reflecting on how the current conflict in Ukraine and the invasion of Ukraine had made you question different values that you felt the left hold, namely anti-imperialism, anti-fascism, and anti-racism. And you kind of thought about how in the context of the current situation in Ukraine, none of those three seemed adequate um, to give one kind of a good position uh, on the war, that all of them seemed to fail in different ways to describe what was going on and to lead the left politically um, in any sort of fruitful way. And so I thought that those remarks of yours were actually really in the spirit of um, the panel. Yeah. Though, you know, I did ask you about imperialism. And part of the reason for that is that you had actually mentioned earlier in your kind of opening remarks um, that uh, you had treated imperialism as the foreign policy of the United States. And so when that question came up from the audience um, and Christoph and Daniel kind of gave their responses about how they would define imperialism, I was interested to see what you would have to say um, about precisely that question. Yeah, I mean, so uh, joking aside, I, I think uh, on one hand, I came out of the panel feeling like the, the panel's description was, what are these terms imperialism, revolutionary defeatism, self-determination? What do they mean today in this context? And I came out of the, uh, the panel feeling that I had sidestepped these things, but in a way that was helping to reframe things uh, away from this kind of side taking that seems to be the first impulse of a lot of um, leftists and revolutionaries, uh, essentially saying like, well, which side is more Nazi or more imperialist or does Russia represent a counter hegemonic block or something? And so I wanted to reframe it around another part of the, the prompt, which was revolutionary defeatism, turning the imperialist war into a civil war and trying to theorize how this war might lead to the kind of economic devastation and other kinds of devastation that would lead to uh, the state being vulnerable in various places, including in the United States and in Russia. That was my approach. But at the same time, I think uh, it is kind of a shortcoming to use like some of Lenin's concepts like revolutionary defeatism while really not engaging seriously with these classic notions of imperialism. So that's why I, I thought it would be a good discussion to have today. Yeah, I agree. I think it's good to have the discussion. I mean, just thinking about why we put that in the description, because um, it was myself and some of our comrades in Germany that came up with the description for the panel. 
And part of the reason that we wanted to ask specifically about Lenin um, was not just because we were kind of seeing Lenin come up on campuses. Um, so there are several reading groups held by different leftist organizations at Columbia, also at the New School that are reading Lenin right now. Um, and then, of course, there are the articles that have been published by mostly Trotskyist organizations, but also some other organizations that will cite Lenin um, to kind of explain their position about Ukraine. Um, but one of the other reasons that we wanted to raise that is that we wanted to raise the original context for the strategy of revolutionary defeatism and also try to raise the unique definition of imperialism for Marxists and for Lenin, um, as opposed to the liberal definition. Um, so maybe I should explain those two things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, great. Um, in terms of turning the imperialist war into a civil war, um, I think the historical context of this slogan is really important for understanding what it means, because the idea isn't really that a war or a crisis or kind of just bad things happening in the world or some sort of chaos um, is going to kind of lead to revolution in a straightforward way. What Lenin is really marking there is how the crisis of the First World War was a crisis created by and occasioned by the growth of the workers' movement for socialism in Europe, but also across the world. So the rise of mass parties for the first time in history in the late 19th century, um, parties which were kind of effectively in government. So the SPD, which is the German Social Democratic Party, had a plurality in the Reichstag, which is basically German parliament at that time. Of course, Germany still had a Kaiser, but that meant that they had you know, control. They could veto things. They could, you know, exercise some control over what the state was doing. So you had mass parties in lots of countries that were working together. They were organized in the Second International um, with the ostensible goal of making revolution. And Lenin and even Kautsky, um, Karl Kautsky, who is often opposed to Lenin, um, by particularly Trotskyists, but also others um, in kind of a flat way, um, had this idea as early as, you know, kind of around the early 1900s, maybe 1909, 1903, that there would be some sort of conflict, there would some sort of war brewing, and that that war would actually be the opportunity for revolution. It would signal um, the revolution uh, because that war would be in part the result of the pressures that had been put on the capitalist state um, by the advancing working class movement for socialism. And so what Lenin marks around the First World War, and this is what eventually puts him at odds with Kautsky, is that imperialism and the war is already splitting the working class movement for socialism. And so what does he mean by imperialism? He means not just policy. And so this is something he says in his imperialist pamphlet, which I think is really important. It's not just the policy of the state. It's not just their kind of mean foreign policy, oppressive regimes, all of these sorts of things, um, that it's actually kind of the crisis of democracy that takes place on an international scale, both domestically for imperialist powers, but also exported right, to other countries through wars and all of these sorts of things. So it's not just a policy, but rather it's a form that democracy is taking in capitalism. It's an expression of the general will in capitalism. So it's, it's a form of democracy. And that this form of democracy 
has occasioned already a split in the workers' movement for socialism. Um, he calls them the opportunists. They're also known as the vulgar Marxists, right? Um, so it splits the working class movement internally, and it also appears to split it internationally. So, you know, German workers being sent to kill French workers, being sent to kill Russian workers, right, by the millions in the trenches. And that that is uh, the occasion for not just an imperialist war, but what ought to be a civil war. That it poses the question of state power, the necessity of taking state power for the workers' movement. And it also poses the necessity of splitting the workers' movement. That the split in the workers' movement that's currently happening on the basis of nations and imperialist divisions within bourgeois politics needs to instead happen on the basis of the crisis within those parties themselves, right? Within Marxism over opportunism, social imperialism, Basically, whether you're going to throw in with your own bourgeois state to preserve the power and the gains that these parties have gotten on the national level, or whether you are going to turn the imperialist war into a civil war and try and make revolution internationally, aka instituting the international dictatorship of the proletariat. Okay, so that's like really complicated. Um, But part of the reason that I think it's important to go back into this history is to show how different it is from what we're dealing with today. Um, so, for example, when Kristoff talks about how, um, you know, a defeat for imperialism, and really he means a defeat for America, because I think today for the left, and this is something that we've gotten from the 20th century, anti-imperialism really means being against the American empire. Um, it's anti-Americanism on some level, um, that a defeat for America and for American imperialism will aid the revolution. Um, and you know, he said to me, he may not have said this in the panel, but he said this to me in conversation, that if you get rid of imperialism and support national self-determination struggles, um, such as those in the Donbass region, uh, then those workers will be more open um, to socialism because they'll see who the real enemy is once they've gotten rid of the enemy um, that is the imperialist. They'll see that it wasn't just America that was their enemy. It's all capitalists that are their enemy. So so he has this sort of position. Um, and just to, to jump in, he, at, at one point he said, and this is something that I wrote down, he said that imperialism is the major threat worldwide. I, I understand like why imperialism is so important to so many people, especially people being oppressed by imperialist militaries and police and so on. But uh, uh, as a Marxist, I, I would think that the class repression would be the major threat. To me, that's it's like a really two different frames of politics. I suppose, I mean, there's a historical reason that Christoph holds this position, right? Which is kind of what I'm trying to get at, that, you know, somebody like Lenin could maybe say something similar, Right that imperialism is an obstacle to the revolution, social imperialism. And what he would really mean is the opportunism within the Marxist party itself and within the struggle for socialism itself, right? So the idea that the working class um, could, through social democracy and kind of having some sort of shareholder position in the state, um, protect different gains that would ameliorate the crisis of capitalism and bring us maybe somehow closer to socialism, or at the very least, and this is a position that somebody like Kautsky would have taken, protect the party 
right, protect the political organizations of the working class, that this is an obstacle to world revolution, that this is the primary obstacle um, to revolution. And so the obstacle is at home. And so that's the slogan that Christoph is really thinking of. Um, is that slogan um, adequate to describe Ukraine, where there really is no working class politics to speak of, right? There's bourgeois politics, um, and that's really what war is. There's this like great von Clausewitz quote that Lenin uses in uh, Socialism and War, um, which I, lots of people use. I've heard it tons of places, um, which is that war is politics by other means. Um, and so in Lenin's time, war was politics by other means, meaning it was the crisis created by the struggle for socialism playing out in l violent, more or less violent means, right? Playing out through the use of force. Today, when there's no socialist politics to speak of, right, what does it mean to try and uphold Lenin's position on imperialism, right? It means that you have to side, in Kristoff's case, um, against NATO and against America and say, well, we want, you know, kind of critical support for the Russian invasion and for these different national self-determination movements. I mean, at the same time, there are people who are using Lenin's position to try and say that you need to support Ukraine um, or that you would want revolutionary defeatism on both sides. So this is the Spartacist League position is that, you know, if there's a defeat for Russia, um, but also if there's a defeat for NATO, that both of these um, could lead to revolutions um, in Russia or in America and the NATO countries, right? Um, and if Russia is defeated, if, you know, the regime um, led by Putin is defeated, what's going to take his place? I mean, it's not going to be leftist. It's not going to be a workers' movement for socialism, certainly. It's just going to be another faction, another racket within capitalist politics, Right. And so the whole kind of question that Lenin was trying to get at with imperialism, like the meaning for politics of the left and for revolution that the ideas Lenin had about imperialism could have could have are completely off the table if you try and apply it directly to Ukraine. I think that was a big reason that we wanted to raise that, because when, you know, Lenin's positions about imperialism are taken up, it really just vulgarizes and confuses what he was trying to say. And it leaves so many questions off the table. I mean, it really kind of fails. And you noted this, that it treats imperialism as like the foreign policy of the United States. Um, and it fails to take up how the war in Ukraine is an authentic expression of capitalist democracy. Maybe tell us more about this idea that uh, the war in Ukraine is a sort of authentic representation of bourgeois politics. Mm. Oh, sure. Um, that it's an expression of the general will of society. And this is an important thing about how Marxists treat imperialism and specifically how Lenin, Luxembourg, right, the second international kind of radicals treated imperialism. Um, and I think another member of Platypus, Spencer Leonard, um, who is, you know, a teacher of mine, uh, was on Doug Lane's podcast talking about this through, because he's doing this book project on um, Marxist journalistic writings. Uh, so I think Spencer was discussing this. Um, so, you know, everybody go watch that because he, he discusses this in detail and I owe a lot of what I'm saying to him, um, but also to uh, reading Lenin, um, which is that 
Imperialism is in some ways a kind of repetition and deepening of the problem of Bonapartism. Okay, so what's Bonapartism? Um, after the 1848 revolution uh, in France, but also kind of around Europe, uh, a republic, the Second Republic, is created in France, and Louis Bonaparte is elected to be president. After four years, in 1852, he leads a coup to make himself emperor for life. And this coup is ratified democratically by the people. He also brings in kind of Prussian military and all sorts of different forces to crush and put down uh, working class protests um, around Paris and around France. Okay, so what, why is this important for Marx? Why is he thinking about this? Um, because Louis Bonaparte is both the creation of the revolution and also seemingly like the destruction of the revolution. He both seems to be the product of democracy and also the most authoritarian thing that there could be. Um, and Marx is trying to understand how democracy which is really a phenomenon of capitalism, right? You don't have mass democracy, the demand for mass democracy until after the Industrial Revolution. And it's a demand that was taken up by socialists. So for example, the Chartists in England. How democracy in capitalism becomes self-contradictory, that it has self-contradictory ends, that the will of the people also seems to dominate and oppress the people. And this plays out over many years. So, you know, the beginning of the like forever wars of capitalism is really the Crimean War um, and also, you know, kind of the opium wars in China. I think the second opium war in China um, in which Louis Bonaparte, with the help of Lord Palmerston in England and, you know, at different times, the aid of other capitalist powers, gallivants about the world, um, uh, making war um, and, you uh, taking over a different claiming, I suppose, new markets for capital, right? Um, and all of this is an authentic expression of democracy. Um, and so the reason that Louis Bonaparte can be both an authoritarian leader and also the true democratic representation of the people is that the people itself it has come into crisis. And the expression of the self-contradiction of the general will of society is the class struggle for Marx. It's the cleavage of society, which, you know, since the bourgeois revolutions was supposed to represent everyone, was supposed to represent universal wealth, universal want, universal potential, right, of all of its members, um, has come into crisis um, since the Industrial Revolution. Uh, because our social relations of labor are no longer able to mediate our relations amongst one another. And so Louis Bonaparte represents the people when they're no longer revolutionary, when they have come into crisis. And imperialism is similarly an expression of the will of the people. It's an expression of democracy that is also seemingly against the interests of the people that leads to their destruction.
right? So, you know, what are some of the things that led to the need for German capital to search all over the world? Well, it was the demands of the Socialist Party, like very explicitly. And you can see this if you read, um, I think one of the best things to read for this is Rosa Luxemburg's pamphlet, Reformer Revolution, because she talks about some of the demands of the Socialist Party that are taken up by Edward Bernstein, um, who's kind of a famous reformist, he's called a revisionist, as being, you know, examples of socialism being created within capitalism. And it's things like, you know, being able to own stocks, right? The stock market, finance capital. Um, it's, you know, another thing is just if you have a workers' movement, a strong workers' movement in your country that, you know, stops you from closing uh, down your factory and moving it across the world and also forces you to pay higher wages, then you need to find new markets so that you can make money for that, right? You need to find new ways. You have to find ways to um, compete, uh, even though you have this workers' movement taking proceeds of capital, right? And so imperialism is demanded by the people and, in fact, the result of, in part, the activity of the working class politically. And I think one of the people who asked a question, it was Danny Jacobs, who's a member of Platypus. It didn't quite um, go over with the panelists because I think the way he asked it might have been a bit confusing to them, wasn't really speaking their language. Um, But he asked about how the workers contribute um, to imperialism. And that's really what's meant. It's how imperialism is a phenomenon of an internal crisis of democracy, that it's not just about going out around the world and stealing stuff from India, from China, from Africa, from Russia, from Germany, from wherever, right, um, for your own benefit, but it's also about an internal democratic political crisis. Um, So when it comes to the war in Ukraine, that it's an authentic expression of democracy is just to say that we still in some way live in bourgeois society where our governments, no matter what type of government they are, whether we have elections that are more or less fair, whether we have dictators, whether we have um, parliaments, you know, whatever, um, that, you know, the state is supposed to represent society. It's supposed to represent the people and it's subject to the needs of the people um, and it's subjects to the needs of, I don't know, the body politic, roughly speaking, which is, of course, not a united people, right? It's riven um, with, uh, I suppose, class contradiction, one could say. But nevertheless, like the reason that somebody like Putin might invade Ukraine has just as much to do with the internal politics of Russia as it does with the politics of Ukraine and the geopolitics of NATO and Russia. Similarly, you know, the reason that like Biden and his crew, I'll just call it his crew, um, seem to be kind of having this weird like drumming for war, but not really drumming for war and have on some level provokes the crisis has to do with um, internal politics, domestic politics, just as much as it has to do with international geopolitics. And that democracy or the demand for democracy um, is actually being realized in reality by this war. Um, and so what does that mean? What does it mean if this war isn't just the actions of an evil man, right? Vladimir Putin or an evil conspiracy of men, you know, the Russian oligarchs or NATO, 
um, but is the expression, the authentic expression of democracy and capitalism. Well, it means, as Marx said already, and as Lenin would later say, in albeit in somewhat different terms, that the task of socialists is to win the battle for democracy. And... Um, in fact, in some ways, to go beyond bourgeois democracy. So the, the way Rosa Luxemburg would say this is that we've had formal democracy, but we need to have real democracy. Um, it's content, uh, not just form, um, needs to uh, uh, realize democracy. And um, that one needs to fight for state power. And so like all of these things are bound up in the question of imperialism. But if imperialism just becomes the foreign policy of the United States... That's really like a pre-Marxian liberal view of what something like imperialism is. And it leaves aside the question of democracy. Then one could say, well, what we just need is better democracy in America or better people in charge or better people in charge in Russia. And that will like solve all of our problems. Um, Meanwhile, we will be uh, demanding the very thing namely bourgeois democracy, which is in part, if not in whole, responsible for what's happening in reality, right? And so it's like socialists and Marxists must remain critical towards the politics of the present and towards the politics of the working class. At least that's how they would have felt historically. And part of that means remaining critical towards the demand for democracy and trying to push it beyond its own limits. Um, And so, you know, I think that's something that's really important to preserve from Marxism that can often get lost. Sorry, that was (laughs) long-winded. I hope that answered the question. Oh, it was good. It was good and thorough. It's it's an important intervention to the way that it's often talked about because the typical, you could say, uh, anti-war sentiment is that nobody wants war or, um, you know, the Russian people don't want this. They secretly hate Putin. Or the Ukrainian people just want peace, and there's a lot of uh, evidence that actually the the reverse is true. I mean, Euromaidan is. I think you said there's no workers' movement in Ukraine, and I think in, in a way that's true. But also, the the Euromaidan um, uprising of 2014 came with massive general strikes. Like there is a reason why they were able to overthrow the government back then. That was more than just. Uh, you know, CIA meddling and Molotov cocktails in a square. Like, they shut down the country until the the Russian-aligned oligarchy had to flee. And ever since, the establishment in the Ukraine has been so nationalistic and so anti-Russia that this civil war in these breakaway regions has has remained hot. And that's kept this tension going. And the tension is also part of Russia's internal politics, where even... Putin's small opposition, uh, which I believe is led by the Communist Party, actually, are one of the major forces behind Putin recognizing those breakaway republics and defending them. And some of them say now, well, we didn't want war as part of that defense, but that's sort of inevitable. So in in a sense, this war was kind of conjured from the will of the people. And in another sense, uh, I I really like this uh, article by Michael Roberts that was recently in the Brooklyn Rail, I'll put it in the show notes, that demonstrates the immense value of Ukraine um, uh, in terms of its agricultural production, its unexploited raw materials. He uses this term that like these different capitalist blocs are just drooling about getting their hands on it. And the plan with Zelensky, I think, is to 
to sell a lot of it off to the West. So there's also this sort of neo-colonial aspect to it. So when I was reading through this essay of Lenin that you sent, Socialism and War, I saw different aspects uh, of the war playing out and different ways to interpret this, either as imperialist war, like how he, he would qualify World War One, or he says at one point, if India were to declare war on uh, England, of course, we would support that immediately, no matter the context, because that would be an anti-colonial war. And I think some people see Russia as breaking with this U.S.-led global financial imperial hegemony and seeing that as being, uh, you know, bourgeois progressive or perhaps even Bonapartist, right? Okay, I think a way to address this that kind of gets at some several of the things that you brought up is that democracy, right, it's not just what people think, but it's also competition, it's compromise, right, it's politics um, that represents the general will, but the general will isn't just the sum of its parts, it's not just, you know, kind of people's ideas, um, but what those ideas, the necessities that um, people's activity and ideas about their activity in society lead to. Um, and so when Lenin talks about supporting an anti-colonial war in India, um, or more generally supporting national self-determination, what he's really talking about is the appearance of the demand for the bourgeois revolution, right? Um, he says this, I believe, in the section on national self-determination that I sent. It is in Socialism and War, um, and he addresses it elsewhere. The imperialism pamphlet's also good um, about this, which is that national self-determination struggles are really just the demand to have like a French Revolution or an American Revolution. I mean, we just know this from history, which is that, you know, what is it um, that the demand was in the Philippines was to have a constitution, just like in America, um, to have, you know, our own American Revolution and you Americans, how can you control us um, when you, you know, threw off uh, the yoke of um, the British uh, crown um, and wanted to rule yourselves, right? And so the reason to support and work with um, the bourgeois revolution um, is not just because like, oh, it's just good to have liberal nationalist revolutions in places, but actually to compete, um, to compete with uh, those who would be leading these different national self-determination struggles or anti-colonial wars for leadership of discontents with global capitalism. Right. So that an anti-colonial war in India really is a crisis also in Britain and that your support for it is an attempt to show that you have a better solution to this war. Right. Than either the nationalists in India or the, you know, kind of imperialists or even the liberals in Britain, that you're able to offer kind of a better solution to the crisis that created um, the war in the first place. Um, and so that's kind of the reason to participate in it. And so it's like not just about, um, you know, do people in Russia want it or not? It's also about uh, what society finds necessary for our freedom and kind of taking all of these different phenomena in capitalism as the result of our own freedom, as our, of our own work and labor that is therefore subject to change through politics. And that kind of gets me to, you know, what you're bringing up, you, uh, these strikes in Ukraine, is that 
I think there's a difference between a workers' movement and kind of strikes or spontaneous, you know, expressions of discontent. Um, not to, you know, demean anything that happens there, but it is really different to say that one is engaged in a political struggle, that one has a political organization, right? That is um, mediating the relationship that people have to the bourgeois state. Uh, because otherwise, all of these things kind of inevitably end up uh, being one side or another in the fight within uh, bourgeois democracy. So, I mean, even the CIA might represent the will of the people on some level. It might represent democracy. It might represent the needs of society, right? And, you know, the fact that these uh, strikes did or did not play into the CIA or whatever, I don't think that makes them bad just because they might have had something to do with the CIA. I think the real point is that all of these different expressions of discontent in society are today only able to happen on the level of bourgeois capitalist politics, really, of capitalist politics, that they're captured by different rackets in capitalist politics because there is no political party for socialism. There is no mediation of the discontents that the masses have in society, that the working class has in society that can give it a unique political form. And so it's captured by this person or that person and so, you know, that is like the truth, I suppose, of Daniel Lazari's criticism of you on the panel, that you have to be careful with social movements because they might just be, I guess he said petty bourgeois. I mean, the point is really that they just represent like different discontents um, within capitalist politics, right? That without, I mean, he kind of wanted to put it in terms of trade unions and this sort of thing, which, you know, I, I don't know about that, but he does have a point. And I think, you know, you responded by saying that some of these things are petty bourgeois and some of them aren't. So like you said, like the truckers were petty bourgeois, I guess, and these other demands weren't. Really, it's about their politics. It's not like, okay, do the truckers own their trucks or are the truckers laborers or like, are these people working class and these people aren't? Um, It's about the horizon of politics and the horizon of politics for everybody is you know, basically bourgeois. The horizon of politics, the whole world around is capitalist politics. Um, Whether that's, you know, the truckers or BLM, I got to say, or the, you know, uh, if you don't want to say BLM, the, I guess the George Floyd uprising was the way you put it. I mean, Mm -hmm. the horizon for everybody, the whole world over is capitalist politics. It's not like, you know, one of these people is and one of these people, you know, isn't or something. And, oh, January 6th is so horrible and Trump's the worst. So these people are like petty bourgeois, but maybe these people are a bit better. It's like, no, the horizon of politics all over the world is capitalist politics. And I feel like that's really the lesson of Ukraine is that no matter how this ends, who's going to benefit? It's going to be one or another racket in capitalist politics. It's not going to advance socialism. I mean, I'm not happy to say that I'm not like, yippee, haha, gotcha, um, with my cool Marxist point. Like, it's, you know, sad. It's kind of sad Mm -hmm. that that's all that's on the table, but that really is all that's on the table. And so what do leftists do when they try and take sides? Really all they do, because their audience really is just students and like kind of intellectuals, people like this, what they do is they vulgarize historical Marxism, is they miseducate people about what Marxism was in the past. And why do I think that that's a problem? And, it, you know, this gets to like why I'm in platypus and why I would even host this panel. 
I think that's a problem because I think it forecloses possibility. I think it closes our eyes to the types of questions and criticisms that Marxism poses and that Marxism would level against the present that we live in. And so it closes off our possibilities for thinking about the world and therefore for transforming it. Um, but, you know, it's like everybody's rising is kind of capitalist politics. That's really like the world we live in, unfortunately. So I think that your point about contextualizing uh, Lenin's uh, pamphlets and writings and thinking about this question of imperialism a uh, hundred years ago is, is, is really well done. Uh, thinking about the differences in the political structure that we saw back then, there being, of course, a large workers' movement in government, uh, in society, in the, in, the, in the labor movements, and now, as you say, all politics being essentially bourgeois. I wonder if you have a position on uh, the political economy of Lenin's conception of uh, imperialism or the, the highest stage of capitalism, the monopoly capital argument, and if perhaps we haven't in the last hundred years moved on a bit um, from this kind of cartelized, financialized um, impulse for capital in order to overstretch its bounds and, and grab markets. Mm, okay. No, that's a good question. Um, so this isn't to sidestep your question, but to help me answer it, which is that I would like to take a second to just like address what political economy is for Marxists, um, because political economy isn't just like the way the economy works. Um, really, political economy for Marx in Marx's time was the politics of the working class. And so when he writes the critique of political economy, um, Das Kapital, um, he's writing a criticism of the politics of the working class. That's one way of putting it. Um, of course, it's also about reality. Um, but the idea is that, you know, the world that we live in is created by us and that what we think about that world actually rebounds upon that world, right? It has an effect upon that world. Um, and so political economy, like whenever Marx is explaining things in Capital, and, you know, Danny Jacobs from Platypus has a great teaching on this that I helped him with a bit because we were reading Capital together um, uh, last summer. Um, but so he has a great teaching on this. But whenever Marx is kind of making these polemical points in Das Kapital, it really is about the politics. Um, and he really is trying to think about what it means for the workers' movement. It's not just to like try and describe to you what the economy is, right? Because bourgeois economics does that just fine. And in fact, Marxism takes up bourgeois economics. And so Lenin in the imperialism pam pamphlet takes up the liberal description of imperialism. He takes up Hobson. He says that in some ways, Hobson has a better understanding of what's happening than Kautsky does, right? And he's talking about how Hobson marks um, the transformation of uh, the world such that, you know, the main issue isn't the mercantile interest, um, but rather it's the interest of finance capital. And that, that's different than earlier. So you can really see this with, and again, this isn't Marxism. This is just like liberalism and bourgeois history and economics. Um, you can really see this with the two opium wars in China, which is that the first opium war is about opening up China to the mercantile interest that's represented by, for example, the East India Company. Um, whereas the second opium war has much more to do with the playing out of the crisis that began with the 1848 revolutions and Louis Bonaparte, um, and which has spread um, into England in the form of Lord Palmerston and the crisis of the liberals in England. Um, and that there are, you know, kind of this host of other issues um, that are really at play. And one of the big ones being just the ability of the British to build trains 
in China so that they can take all of the peasants from the countryside and ship them to these new southern cities and put them to work so that they can make cheap goods. Um, and this is like back in the 19th century. So this is the liberals. The liberals are already noticing this, right? Somebody like Hobson is noticing this. Um, and so for Lenin, the kind of unique point that Lenin's trying to make in the imperialism pamphlet is how these phenomena, which may seem to be like just transformations in the economy that are happening, that we could simply contemplate as, you know, kind of scientists, are the result of the political organization, the political and the social organization of the working class through mass proletarian parties. And so like when I address the politics, I really am also attempting to address political economy for Lenin. And so the significance of monopoly is tied up with the fact that, you know, the proletariat seems to be demanding monopoly. There's a great essay um, by Eugene Debs that we read sometimes in Platypus called uh, Competition or Cooperation. Um, and it's his criticism of the populists in America. as uh, like William Jennings Bryan, like those guys, uh, Cross of Gold, um, which is that, you know, socialists don't choose between competition and co cooperation. They're not like either against monopolies or pro-monopolies, but that they want the monopolies basically, he doesn't say this in so many words, but you know, you can read the thing, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing, to have the leadership of the proletariat, that they want to use what's made possible by large monopolies. Um, and they want to use it for the good of the whole of society as opposed to for the good of the continuation of capitalism um, on its current basis. Um, and so, you know, there were people who had ideas like Kautsky had this idea that imperialism would give way to super imperialism, where instead of having like many different imperial powers competing, it would just be kind of one imperial power and everything would be peaceful again. Right. And part of Lenin's point is that imperialism isn't just war, it's also peace. Um, so imperialism isn't just the conflict of many different nations, but it's also their unity as the bourgeoisie, as the class of the capitalists against the organization of the workers around the world, because the organization of the workers around the globe transforms capital. Why? Because your political demands are influencing how things are made, where people are living, how they're living, um, how capital is invested, all these sorts of things right, are not simply economic problems, they're also political problems. And so in terms of where we are now, I do think one can question whether we still live in imperialism as described by Lenin. I mean, certainly there are states that do the sorts of things that Hobson describes in his um, pamphlet on imperialism, which I believe was written in 1902. Don't quote me on that, but it's, it's about that period. Um, you know, some of that stuff still happens, right? And so even though the empires are formally gone politically, people can say, well, isn't there neo-imperialism and neo-colonialism? Um, because, you know, uh, the capitalist center is still exercising economic control over the rest of the world. There is, you know, that is certainly still happening. At the same time, can one um, call something like Ukraine an inner imperialist conflict? Is that really what it is? And can one say that we live in the highest stage of capitalism? Because the point of calling it the highest stage of capitalism is saying that it will precipitate the revolution. And this is another sort of link to Marx's idea of Bonapartism, 
which is that Marx felt that Bonapartism was the negative image of the dictatorship of the proletariat. So Louis Bonaparte, um, his coup and the referendum that uh, endorsed his coup uh, is really a phenomenon of the necessity of the dictatorship of the proletariat. So when the bourgeoisie can no longer lead society and the dict- and the proletariat fails to lead society, you get something like Bonapartism. And the solution is that, you know, in the future, the movement of the proletariat, the organization of the working class needs to take up politics and it needs to fight for state power and it needs to institute the dictatorship of the proletariat. Very similar argument is being made about imperialism, which is that the reason imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism isn't just descriptive. It's not because things have changed in reality and now we're just seeing that, oh, we've reached the end. Um, But it's because the workers' movement for socialism and the politics of socialism and Marxism across the world have transformed society. They've brought to a head the crisis of capitalism and made the choice, what Rosa Luxemburg said it was, socialism or barbarism. And that's why it's the highest stage of capitalism for Lenin. And so insofar as you know, we are still living in capitalism and it, the revolution didn't happen, um, does that necessarily invalidate Lenin on the basis of political economy? Well, certainly it means that he failed politically. And we have to take that really seriously. That Lenin, who I think in some ways was, you know, the highest expression of Marxism, and I don't think anybody can argue with that because it's just historically true. Um, you know, even if you don't like his ideas, whatever, he transformed the world. He's the reason probably today people still read Marx is because of what Lenin did. So he's a very significant historical figure. Um, but even he failed, right? Even he failed to realize uh, the potential of his ideas in his own terms. And he'll say things like this too, in um, left-wing communism and infantile disorder, or in notes of a publicist, he'll talk about the need to retreat, uh, the failure um, of the world revolution, um, despite its apparent success in Russia. Um, and in some some other places across the globe. Um, but I think that, you know, the question posed by Lenin about imperialism is uh, perhaps estranged from the present. Maybe it can't apply directly to the present. Um, but I also think that it could apply. It could be something that we could learn from in the future and that it's worth kind of preserving its meaning for that reason um, because it wasn't... If we kind of take the view that, well, now things are different, we don't have monopolies in the same way, we don't have competing imperialist powers in the same way, and so all of this stuff is wrong, actually we misunderstand what he was trying to say, which is that politics created this. So I want to go back to something you said earlier, which is that the only evidence of, um, of I guess, really existing Marxism, or, or you could say the relevance of Marx's uh, ideas, his critique of political economy, um, the only evidence is 1917, and I suppose you could say uh, 1949 as well. Um, I think of things a little differently from that, and it's the reason why I asked the political economy question earlier as relates to uh, Lenin's imperialism, because I do think that there is a kind of forward developmental process that uh, capital has undergone for the last several hundred years. And I do think, too, that... um, it's not simply that that the um that there's a lack in of the mass party that that we need to 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 reconsider but i think that what 
what the critique of political economy does, what Marxism also does, uh, in addition to all the political aspects that you're talking about, is also give us a, a powerful understanding, I think, of the ways in which social crisis is not merely political, uh, but also that it's actually material and objective at the same time. And I'm not sure that Lenin particularly had a crisis theory outside of making the, the crisis political, or that is to say that, that the way that, the, that any crisis was overcome, or I'm not sure. Maybe you could tell me about what, what sort of uh, cri crisis theory Lenin had, if any. But I guess um, I'm wondering if at this late date, now that uh, capitalist uh, production seems to have kind of run out of steam, now that capital is fully globalized, now that it's not simply a matter of um, extracting resources from the global south for American monopoly capital, but that instead there's like a deeply integrated um, capitalist value production stream that with these different conditions that maybe there's different answers out there, uh, different answers for organizing, not on the bounds of, a, say, a national party, and instead that the proletariat itself might start posing ways um, to, to answer the question of how do you create the dictatorship of the proletariat, uh, as opposed to, I suppose, the dictatorship of the party. Because a lot of this talk seems as though it views the working class as an instrument, an instrument for the left uh, in order to, um, to use, uh, to gain power, uh, as the Soviets, ironically, were in the early 20th century, as opposed to actually understanding the true contours of capitalism and its crises and its contradictions and understanding how that engenders certain reactions from the class itself that ultimately means that, capital, that communism isn't a state of affairs to be imposed, but instead is something that, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing, uh, you know, coming into existence as we speak. That's a lot right there. I'm, I'm sorry if, if you have to break that into several responses. No, 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 that's okay. That's okay. Um, thanks for posing that. Yeah, I don't know about 1949. I don't think I'd say that about 1949. Obviously, I think that there are, you know, dates earlier in Marxism that are important. Um, but that aside, um, really, I think, imposing the last 100 years as progress economically, one also is conceding that there was some sort of political progress. Um, why? Because what is economics? It's the result of our activity. And our activity isn't, you know, just determined by like brain chemicals or like, I don't know, some, <laughs> you know, alien that's controlling us. I, you know, it's contr controlled by us politically to some extent. Um, and socially, it has to do with the type of world we think we ought to live in. It has to do with how we think about the world. And so I do think that conceding that there has been kind of economic progress in the past 100 years is conceding to the um, story of progress that the status quo likes to tell us about I, itself. I will point out right? that I use development, not progress. Development? Well, what do you mean by development then? Development in that you know, once this sort of uh, blind machine of capitalist uh, accumulation uh, develops, it starts to not only spread itself extensively across the globe, but also, of course, intensively into social life uh, to the point now where there's aspects of human social life and interaction that are deeply and fully subsumed uh, into capitalism. Uh, and also that, you know, ultimately, the, uh, because of its extensive spread, 
you get to the point where you run out of uh, people to proletarianize, and of course, to the actual limits of um, of the rate of profit. I mean, but didn't you also say that what that makes possible is like you could have the dictatorship of the proletariat yeah. instead of the dictatorship of the party, that like new things are possible? I mean, I would also point out in terms of like the extension of capital across the globe that Lenin was already dealing with this. He already talks about how imperialism isn't just finding new places. It's dividing up what already exists because you're kind of everywhere. And even in Marx's time, there was a sense that in some kind of qualitative way, um, the entire world um was being, you know, uh, transformed by capitalism. Um, there's this idea, I think the way Trotsky puts it, is combined in uneven mm-hmm. development. So capitalism also destroys um, its old markets it, to make way for new ones. It redivides itself. Um, it develops places, but it also undevelops them, um, develops them in ways that may not seem much like development Um, But I do think the idea that a revolution is somehow more possible now, which is an idea that one of my old teachers, the late Moish Pistone, had too. That the development of capitalism makes a revolution that wouldn't kind of end in in Stalinism um, more possible than it used to be. I do think that that at its base accepts the idea that there have been gains economically, if not politically, and that those gains were stewarded by the ruling class, by capitalists, by the capitalist ruling class for the last 100 years, by the counter-revolution. Really, the counter-revolution against 1917 is what stewarded those developments economically and politically. Um, In Platypus, we talk a lot about this idea of regression that some Marxists had. I mean, it really comes in some ways from Adorno and the Frankfurt School, but even somebody like Trotsky or Lenin um, has this notion, uh, Georg Lukács, um, that perhaps things haven't gotten better, but we've fallen back, or that our progress might simply be progress in barbarism. Um, And so I do think that like the taboo that we've inherited on the party um, really throws out the baby with the bathwater. Because, of course, like Lenin and the Marxists of the Second International, they had this idea. They knew that the proletariat had to make the revolution. You know, Chris Coutron will often point out, I think he points this out in Shinwazari, but maybe it's somewhere else. Um, but, you know, I've just talked to him about this, that um, even Mao knew. Even Mao knew that, like, the people had to make the revolution. That's why he had his 100 flowers speech. And that's not like some sort of endorsement of Maoism or Mao's politics, but even kind of Mao understood that the party can't make the revolution, um, that it does have to be the proletariat. And so, you know, your notion that the idea is that leftists use the proletariat as a tool, which I think actually does relate to this post-left discussion Andy and I were having earlier because they have kind of a similar idea. Really, the point would be that the, uh, the proletariat must turn itself into its own tool, that it must become the subject and the object of history, that it creates society, and so it needs to become conscious of the fact that it creates society. And the party should be the tool for the proletariat to do that. The crisis that... Marxism faced in the late uh, 19th, early 20th century around these revolutions, the crisis of Marxism, the revisionist dispute was really about, in some ways, the reification of the party as an end in itself. The idea that the party and the political gains made by the party and by the workers' movement for socialism more broadly, so even by the trade unions, right, 
were ends in themselves, as opposed to tools for establishing the dictatorship of the proletariat, which would simply begin the process of revolution, which would lead to all sorts of divisions amongst you know, the working class, would lead to new political formations, new ideas, right, that would go beyond Marxism necessarily. Um, and so the taboo on the party, right, the identification of um, the party with the state that happens under Stalinism, I think we really shouldn't concede to that, right? Even if it's kind of reasonable to be, you know, um, dismayed at what happened in the Soviet Union, um, nevertheless, somebody like Lenin or Luxembourg would have tried to uphold a non-identity of the party, of the class, of the state, and of the people, of the masses, that these none of these are the same thing, and that the party is a tool that can be used by the proletariat to make the revolution, and that the role of the left is to provide basically theoretical labor for that tool, right? That the party is supposed to bring together the intellectuals and the workers to transform both of them into the party militant. And so it's not just that, you know, the working class is like being used by like some sort of conspiracy, right? Like some kind of Blancas, like a little conspiracy of equals, um, you know, smart leftists pulling the strings behind the scenes, um, but rather that the ideas and practices of both intellectuals and the working class are supposed to be transformed. Um, because what do the intellectuals really represent? They represent a consciousness of the bourgeois revolutions. They represent a consciousness of the history the revolutionary history of bourgeois society. And that is a necessary tool for the proletariat. Without it, it will not be able to make the revolution. That is, you know, kind of an idea that Marxists have. And the party is supposed to facilitate it in transforming itself, the proletariat in transforming itself, and in transforming that history and using it. Um, but yeah, the proletariat has to make the revolution. That's true. But I don't think that that um, should mean that we have a taboo against party and party politics. All right, we end not disagreeing. That's excellent. <laughs> and um, I think what I'm going to do is uh, bracket some of this discussion and move it over to a bonus. So if you'd like to compensate us for our intellectual labor, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash the Antifada and, and please support us. You can support us for $5, $10, or $1 and get more bonus discussion with Aaron Haygood and tell us how we can learn more about Platypus and and join the pre-political party. <laughs> oh, well, thanks, Andy. Yeah, um, so for those of you who don't know, Platypus is an international organization of students and also non-students around the world. I already said international. Of course, it's around the world. Sorry, guys, long night. Dedicated to hosting the conversation on the left about the death of the left to investigate the potential for new and renewed emancipatory politics in the present. To that end, we host a reading group that reads the history of the left, and, you know, it's the best history that you're going to get, it's the best education you're going to get on the history of the left. Um, we host panel discussions, such as the panel that Andy was on, which you can find on YouTube. And we publish um, views from a variety of different leftist activists, intellectuals, academics um, in the Platypus Review, which, of course, you can submit to. You can find us at www.platypus1917.org, um, and you can probably find us around the world. There's an email online that you can find um, that'll lead you to us. And, you know, 
uh, feel free to uh, to drop me a line. I do I have Instagram. I guess people could DM me there. I don't really use Twitter anymore, but I'm you. at Buttercup with uh, four R's and no E. Um, so, you know, feel free to drop me a line too. But Platypus is around the world. You can probably find us um, and check us out online. So, yeah, thank you so much, Andy. And check out the panel that Andy's in. The, there's more than one, but the most recent one is on Ukraine, Crisis in Ukraine. Um, just look that up on YouTube with Platypus. Yeah. You'll find it. Thank you for coming on. And uh, obviously, we have our differences about looting. I think it's cool. But you <laughs> let us say that at the Platypus panel discussion. So that's great. Good stuff. Thank you so mm-hmm. much, Aaron. All right. Thanks, guys. Good night. Мог смотри, чтоб не развязался пупок, то тут крыса. Я был лоялен до конца. Ты устраивал детсад, но я отстаивал твой за. Спроси Борчи. Ты дома мы с ним никак не поймем, на что твой закулисный диск намекал я. Зорче, я последний из магиканты, лишь микс пополам мегатри шоу мейкон. Да наша империя с нуля. Да важно доверие семья. Вы что поверили в себя? Твой гонор фанаберия селян какое редкое слияние гигиены и змея. Ты что? Решил мой корабль затонул на кораллах, ну и ну кто-то рано звезданул, ты базаришь про игру. На босс ее финала мига коли надо, то добро пожаловать в столу. Я тебя накормлю, для того, чтобы прервать на корню, тягу нас упоминать в интервью. Фрики в платье поют, я буду в рот ебать, я в тачун, бака судит аптека, как фантю. Я товарищи тогда найду, казалось, но мрази принимают доброту за слабость. Похуй все возвращается назад, я не остепину, знай карма, это сука, и я улыбаюсь. И если ты не полностью суицидален, промолчи в ответ за сын подальше свой ущербный говор. Ты так мечтал куплетом наебать нас, но ты наебал тебя, пизду обратно свой волшебный город.